ultimately the goal is whatever the patient wants. Hello and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson. I am thrilled as always to be joined by my co-host on the East Coast, Jeremy Holden. Jeremy, set the scene for me uh, in your neighborhood and, and city. Is it quiet? Are people doing the right thing and adhering to CDC guidelines about social distancing and the like? Uh, yeah, I, I say for the most part, it's noticeably quiet. If I go out to walk the dogs, there are fewer people on the walking paths. But, you know, people are doing the, the porch socialization, you know, waving to neighbors, mm-hmm. see some sidewalk to porch conversations happening. So I think people are being creative and finding ways to engage with their neighbors. But certainly I'm seeing people adhering to best practices as described by the CDC. What are you seeing? Yeah, the same, the same. Here in Minnesota, uh, the weather's warming up a little bit and people are anxious, I think, to get outdoors, but everyone wants to be cognizant of those guidelines and be respectful and then try and keep everyone safe and healthy. Yeah, a lot of kind of distance walking and distance socializing, and hopefully uh, that's working. And we've been trying here on Connecting ALS to keep our listeners up to speed on the COVID-19 pandemic from an ALS-specific lens. So we've been discussing various tie-in topics. And for this week's episode, we wanted to connect with someone in a clinical setting as uh, ALS clinics all around the country are facing changes, as you might expect, trying to limit exposure for their patients. And we had the good fortune of speaking with Lauren Tabor-Gray from the Phil Smith ALS Clinic at Holy Cross Hospital in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And Jeremy, Lauren had some excellent insight into not only what her clinic is experiencing at the moment, but some of the things that they're corresponding with their patients on. She did. And, you know, we heard last week when we talked to Kathleen Sheehan at the ALS Association about some changes to access to telehealth. And I, you know, I was struck by Lauren kind of digging into the way that their clinic down there is is dealing with and really trying to lean into the telehealth options in these times of extreme social distancing. And really, it's, it's not hard to imagine that this becomes a pivotal moment in the adoption of telehealth. We'll hear from Lauren in a moment about the ways that they are incorporating that into their patient outreach. Yeah, it was very interesting to hear. And it's possible that a lot will change in the coming weeks across the nation, across the world. And telehealth is going to be a big part of healthcare, probably moving forward and certainly for the time that we're living with the pandemic. And we should say that this conversation with Lauren Tabor Gray was recorded on Tuesday, March 24th. So anything that she's going to speak to regarding her clinic's adjustments was coming from that period of time. We just want to let you know that. But let's take a listen to what Dr. Lauren Tabor Gray had to say. We are joined today by Lauren Tabor Gray, the co-director of the Phil Smith ALS Clinic at Holy Cross Hospital in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Lauren, thanks so much for being with us on Connecting ALS today. Of course, happy to join. Thank you for having me. So, Lauren, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and your role over at the Phil Smith Center and a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I've been doing research in ALS for about 10 years now. I started at the University of South Florida with Dr. Emily Plowman, who was my PhD mentor at the University of Florida as well. I did my PhD at the University of Florida with Dr. Plowman and predominantly did ALS research in speech and swallowing disorders, which is kind of my niche of research and and clinical 
clinical care as well. In 2018, I moved down to Fort Lauderdale and was very fortunate enough to coincide my arrival in Fort Lauderdale with the opening of the Phil Smith Neuroscience Institute. So the story of our clinic is is actually a really good one. Phil Smith was an ALS patient at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he was a very fortunate man, was very successful, and had a jet that he took to and from the Mass General ALS Clinic. And he didn't like that there wasn't a good kind of multidisciplinary clinic in his community. So he made a very gracious donation to Holy Cross Hospital, which created the Phil Smith Neuroscience Institute and subsequently the Phil Smith ALS Clinic. So here we are, three kind of short years later. I'm currently the co-director of the ALS Clinic with Dr. Eduardo Locatelli, who's one of our neurologists. And currently my time is 50% clinical and 50% research. So it really works out to be a dream job for me because I have a hand in in both pots, which is something I've I've always wanted. That's great. And I think that's something that not a lot of clinicians are able to balance well. And it's it's so cool that you are are kind of splitting your time in that way. And I do we wanna ask you about your research a little bit later on in this conversation, but We're going to start where we're going to start because given the state of the world and the ongoing pandemic, it's hard not to begin any conversation with that topic. Can you, uh, Lauren, just tell us what's happening at your hospital right now in Florida and how your clinic is, is adjusting? Sure. So the Neuroscience Institute where our clinic is housed is connected to Holy Cross Hospital. So our hospital is transitioning to COVID floors versus standard of care floors, keeping them completely separate at this time. And all of the surrounding outpatient facilities that are really on hospital campus are now being turned into coronavirus treatment centers. So we have fever clinics and places where people can go to be screened and subsequently tested and treated. And that's all kind of in transition at this point in time. Right now, we're From an ALS clinic standpoint, we're transitioning to 100% telehealth. You know, this virus targets the respiratory system, and that's really not something our patients can tolerate because in the event that they do Mm -hmm. get a respiratory illness, you know, it's a the primary cause of mortality is respiratory insufficiency. So that would really be a huge, a huge blow to their system. So we're we're working on establishing all of our telehealth protocols and how to do diagnostics and evaluation over the phone. So Lauren, what does that look like? I mean, walk me through as someone who's never been a party to a telehealth session. What what does that actually look like? So my experience with telehealth kind of started when I was at the University of South Florida in Tampa. They, when patients got to very advanced stages of the disease, we would do some sort of HIPAA compliant software, do FaceTime visits with the patient in their home. The respiratory therapist would go out to the home, do the vitals, get the vital capacity. And then we would basically pass around an iPad and do a FaceTime visit with each one of the multidisciplinary care professionals in order to do it as good a visit as we could from a symptom management standpoint. Now that we're in this coronavirus kind of unchartered territory, people are limited in their ability to go into the home with these high-risk patients. So a lot of our home health companies are no longer doing in-person visits with these patients. So right now, you know, our team and our patients have been incredibly flexible during this time, which I really appreciate. But as you guys know, this is a rapidly progressive disease. And in our clinic specifically, we're really dependent on objective measures. So vital capacity, their peak cough flow, speaking rate, lingual pressure. 
And each time the patient comes into the clinic in person, we graphically plot these measures online, and then we track and trend each individual's disease progression as they come back into the clinic. So with them being just via FaceTime or via Zoom conference call, we're limited in that from a telehealth standpoint. But, you know, with the advances in technology, we're really fortunate to have these audiovisual conferencing abilities. So I will let you know on that. We're doing the best we can here in this transition. Yeah, I think that's all that anyone can ask. And hearing what you said about having to do some of those objective measures and those physical tests obviously aren't going to translate particularly well to a telehealth setting. Is there anything in particular that you think still works well close to what you're getting in person in a clinic via telehealth? So interestingly, the Northeastern ALS Consortium is a conference that we go to every year. It's one of the biggest ALS conferences in the country. And a few researchers at Massachusetts General, including Dr. James Berry, has been working on an f- iPhone or some sort of smartphone application where we can take these measurements over the phone in order to use as research outcome measures. And one of the things that they found works pretty well is speaking rate. So how quickly the person is speaking, and there's been a lot of research into this being a very sensitive measure to track changes in bulbar function, so speech and swallowing. So we can definitely use that this as an opportunity to continue to do measures like that, but, you know, kind of limited here from an objective right. standpoint. Right. That makes sense. What are you hearing from the patients that you're having the sessions with? Anything in particular that you're hearing related to the pandemic or just in general about the telehealth process? Overall, I think our patients have been, they've expressed a lot of gratitude to our clinic for trying to continue services. And despite all of this, you know, they know they're not the only patients, but they are our focus in the ALS clinic, obviously. So they just want to be reassured that they can still get services in the home, that they can still get the medical equipment that they need. So a lot of patients have reached out with kind of just like, hey, here's my list of questions. And then we put them on for a conference call and we just address them one by one. So it might be forcing some people to be a little bit more proactive in fear that they're not going to be able to get the services they need, which can be a, the silver lining, I suppose. But Yeah. And as you said earlier, because we're all adjusting, I think it's going to take some time and for both the clinics and the families living with ALS to kind of figure out the right sort of rhythm of care. And we're all learning as we go. So it's good to hear that the transition thus far for you and your clinic is going as about as smoothly as it, it could, given where we're at. Yeah. Aside from just adhering to general best practices around social distancing and hygiene with everything happening with COVID-19. Are there additional specific precautions that you're telling families living with ALS that they should be aware of? No, not anything additional. I just think we're reiterating everything the CDC and the World Health Organization have sent out in their informatics, particularly because one of the primary symptoms is shortness of breath and respiratory distress. You know, just really staying at home, definitely not traveling, which has been an unfortunate message to relay because a lot of these patients do have trips planned with their families. And, you know, with a limited amount of time, it's hard to tell them to cancel those things. But with their best interests in mind, it really is just complying with all the recommendations as as strictly as possible. 
Now, you also mentioned at the top that you spend a good amount of time on the clinical research side of things. What can you tell us about the research that you do? Yes, definitely. So the research is is a cornerstone of our program. That was one of the things that was written into the donation that we would facilitate as much research as possible in a disease where the treatment options are are so limited. So right now, I have a multi-site ALS Association Clinical Management Grant with Dr. Emily Plowman at the University of Florida. So our grant is investigating the impact of a medication called Nudexta on Bulbar, so speech and swallowing, function and physiology. And Nudexta is a a medication known to, to most of the ALS world. It was originally prescribed to treat pseudobulbar affect because sometimes they have, you know, excessive laughing or crying emotions that are kind of incongruent with how they're really feeling. And it's a wonderful medication for that. It treats it very well. But when we initially prescribed it in this particular population, a lot of the patients would come back and anecdotally report that the medication, they felt improved their speech or improved their swallowing. So, We wrote a grant to the ALS Association, and we were fortunate enough to get that at the end of 2018. So now we're using objective measures of speech and swallowing to really look at the physiologic impact of the medication to see if it's really seeing the improvements that patients are reporting. And our ALS clinic specifically is also a site for the Healy platform trial, which is going to be really exciting and is set to start here pretty quickly. And then we just have a few sponsored studies from... Companies like Orion and Biohaven that are really popular in our space. So just trying to create some treatment options in a place where we don't have a lot of efficacious things to prescribe or behavioral interventions to implement. And we can share some information about the Healy platform trial in the show notes. I know everybody's very excited about getting that off the ground and running You mentioned swallowing. Are there misconceptions that are common folks need to know about the impact of ALS on the swallowing process? Yeah, I think from a patient standpoint, the number one thing I get in clinic is the fear that this particular function will change overnight. You know, swallowing is an incredibly complex process, much like breathing. Swallowing requires 26 paired muscles and five cranial nerves. You know, and I always like to say... They read these statistics that can be really alarming. Like at some point in the disease process, 85% of the population, the ALS population, will develop some impairment in speech and swallowing, which is, you know, a good statistic to know. But really, that may mean that you get through three years of the disease and you really don't have these impairments if it started in your arms and legs. So we take it, you know, one step at a time because it varies tremendously from patient to patient. And I just like to provide a lot of education. You know, it might be difficult to chew. It might be difficult to move food around in your mouth or transport it from the front to the back. But, you know, there are things that we can do to make sure that you can continue to enjoy the foods that you're eating. And I also like to destigmatize the feeding tube concept. You know, if things get really hard, maybe we take 50% through the feeding tube and 50% by mouth. You know, there are things that we can do to make sure you always have a safety net and that you're still enjoying what you're eating. Thanks for that insight really into the swallowing process and some of those misconceptions that folks may have and how they're addressed by you and your clinic and through your research. I want to ask you about feeding tubes because that's a topic that many families living with ALS have concerns about and fears about, understandably. And uh, a lot of those living with ALS will eventually have to consider a feeding tube as an option. How do you 
approach that conversation and the difficulties that come with it in a clinical setting? So ideally, we start seeing patients at the time of diagnosis or maybe a little bit thereafter. So you get to know them really well and you develop relationships with them. And it gives you an opportunity to understand how they like to receive information. So some patients like to know everything. They talk about they inquire about things. They inquire about feeding tubes, about non-invasive volume ventilation or a cough assist. And it's it's almost an easier way to go about it because everything's just already been discussed by the time it's needed. But then there are patients who really are averse to things like machines and tubes. And in that case, I just think it's really important to say, ultimately, this is 100% your decision. It is just my job to make sure you have all of the accurate information. Mm-hmm. And that means, you know, feeding tubes are placed for a couple different reasons. One, the more obvious is, of course, your swallowing is very impaired. And if you continue to have food go down the wrong way or aspiration, then this could lead to a respiratory infection, which is something we really want to avoid. So if we get the feeding tube placed, it can help supplement your oral intake and avoid those negative consequences, which will ultimately cause the disease to hasten. And another not so commonly known reason that feeding tubes get placed is respiratory capacity. So in order to undergo the procedure, you have to have a certain amount of, you know, reserve in your system. You can't be really compromised when it comes to a respiratory standpoint because of the anesthesia and just the recovery in general. So that's something that not a lot of people consider. Uh, And I just think it's important to give the information in a very honest and upfront way include the, the person in the decision. Don't just say you need to get a feeding tube now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, education along the way. It's just, it's crucial. You know, the weight loss, the decline in the BMI, the perfect storm that kind of evolves throughout the disease with the combination of weight loss and hypermetabolism. You know, it's, education is goes so far when considering these things. I have heard other clinicians echo that, that the education is such a key piece. And the earlier on you can start that education, you can at least increase individuals and families' levels with comfort around talking about it. And having that information is is so important to them because it's the not knowing that causes a lot of anxiety. So the sooner you can get that in front of them, the easier it'll be to have those conversations at least. Definitely. And with that in mind, you mentioned some of the weight maintenance, BMI, hypermetabolism issues. Talk about that a little bit and the importance of trying to maintain the proper nutrition while living with ALS. Yes. And this is something that myself and our dietitian, and I think that kind of dynamic, the SLP and the dietitian across all multidisciplinary clinics work very closely to try to prevent this at all costs, particularly in patients who are thin to begin with. You know, so much of ALS management is managing the symptoms, and we don't have a lot to offer when it comes to treatment options, but one thing that we do know about the disease is that rapid weight loss or rapid decline in BMI is associated with progression of the disease. So that's a powerful piece of knowledge considering that rilazole is currently the best medication that we have and it improves survival by 89 days. You know, it's something that we can really mm-hmm. hang on to when we can have a treatment effect through nutrition alone. So weight loss is a very slippery slope. We do our best to prophylactically educate and, you know, explain exactly what's going on in the body. Your appetite may be impacted, which is a contributor to weight loss. 
but just underlying in the disease, a lot of patients present with hypermetabolism. So they have a higher resting metabolic rate. They're going to need more calories to maintain their weight and nutrition than you or I would need. And you combine that with someone who is having difficulty swallowing or is anxious or stressed out about the disease in general and don't want to eat. And that just is, uh, it creates the perfect storm. And Emily Plowman wrote a great article about this for patients in, back in like 2014 around the ice bucket challenge that really nicely kind of laid this all out. But we always try to keep in mind, you know, that education early on in the disease is going to be the best method to getting everyone on the same page. Related to nutrition and weight maintenance, I want to ask you about mealtime. I've spoken to some individuals living with ALS that have relayed how losing some of the mealtime traditions were particularly tough for them. Maybe it's because they aren't eating in the same way that they once were or because their communication has been impacted by their disease progression, but they not being able to sit with their family or friends and have a meal in the same way they once did is understandably tough. What advice, if any, do you have for folks in that spot about trying to maintain those traditions? Yeah, I mean, this is really a devastating aspect of the disease. You have your patients come in and, you know, some pe- some people eat to survive. They are mm-hmm. indifferent about food. But then you have your patients who come in and they tell you, like, I live to eat. Like, I, I love everything about it. I love the social aspect. I love sitting around the table communicating. And when you have a disease that robs you of those two things, from a quality of life standpoint, I mean, it's just, it's really detrimental. So I, I, I always keep that in mind as a clinician. You know, if if we do an instrumental swallowing evaluation and they're dysphagic to the point where some things are unsafe, it's a little inefficient, I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of safety and efficiency from a swallowing standpoint if it means that I can preserve their quality of life to a certain extent. So sometimes you just lay all the information to the patient out on the table and say, but these are the five things that we can do, the five strategies that you can use to make it a little bit safer. And, you know, in order to preserve the quality of life that you do have because you've identified this as something that's really important to you, we're just going to have to sacrifice a little bit of whatever it is, safety or efficiency, or it's going to take you longer, or you might have to supplement with peg tube feedings. But ultimately, the goal is whatever the patient wants. Thank you so much, Lauren Tabor-Gray. It was really great to, to talk to you and get some perspective on both What's happening on the clinical side during the pandemic and how you uh, and your colleagues are adjusting to this scenario? And also some more information on nutrition and swallowing and how to cope with some of those related losses for someone living with ALS. It's, it's valuable insight. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Lauren Tabor-Gray at the Phil Smith's Neuroscience Institute for that illuminating conversation, again, recorded on March 24th. And as we've mentioned in recent weeks, we have a great slate of stories lined up to tell you. But in these times, with a developing story around the COVID-19 pandemic, we are going to be committed first and foremost to bringing you the latest information on that important story. That's right. Much more to come. But that is all that we have for you on this episode of Connecting ALS. 
be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or at connectingals.org. And you can find us on social on Facebook and Twitter as well. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter of the ALS Association. Thank you all for listening and we'll connect with you again soon. Thank you.